0: You're listening to the Boots About Business podcast. We share stories from military veterans that have transitioned to the world of business. On the show, you'll hear conversations with business leaders, executives, and entrepreneurs that all started their careers wearing boots in the service of the U.S. Armed Forces. This podcast is equal parts about sharing great stories, helping veterans, helping businesses, and fostering a greater understanding of the value veterans can bring to business. And welcome, everybody, to episode number 25 of the Boots About Business Podcast. I am your host, Frank Strong. Here with us today is Chris Kennedy. He is a former Marine and today a cybersecurity executive for a large financial institution. He's got broad, broad experience across multiple industries, government and commercial, and I'll throw out a couple names. He's previously worked for companies like Attack IQ and Northrop Grumman. Now, I know we've covered cybersecurity recently, but Chris has a really truly unique background, perhaps one of the first cybersecurity officers in the Marine Corps, and it happened almost by accident. He's got a ton of stories, so I think this interview may unfold a little bit differently, but I'm sure you're gonna enjoy it. Welcome to the show, sir.
1: Thanks, Frank. I love the show. Really glad to be here today. Glad to have you.
0: So first question, you know, uniting theme of the show is the service and the uniform. Why did you join the Marines?
1: Man, you mentioned that like kind of lucked myself into it. I mean, I grew up a bootstrap kid in Tennessee, didn't have a lot. Mom and dad were divorced. Mom and me lived with my granddad. I actually enlisted in the Navy. The delayed entry program was going to be a machinist mate. Like he dangled a 60K contract in front of me. I'd never seen money like that before. I was like, let's go. I did really well on the ASVAB and he had the wherewithal to say, man, you're a smart kid. You should apply for one of these ROTC scholarships. And so I did and I got it. And I ended up going to Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee And when I got there, I really embraced the culture of the Marines, made up a couple of friends that were there and frankly learned a lot. I didn't really know what I was doing at that time. So that was kind of the luck piece of both stumbling into that opportunity and then stumbling into ROTC and then stumbling into the Marine Corps. And I really, you know, the core values, what it meant to be in service, what the mission operations were at the time were really appealing. So I transitioned over and graduated as a Marine Corps officer. And then from that, the way Marine Corps officer occupational specialties work as you spend six months at the basic school and I was going to be an artilleryman. I really took a shine to the big guns and thought the you know the full spectrum you're master of your logistical destiny there you know the, the gun the train and everything that's around it and somebody whispered in my ear right around job selection you should think about what you really want to do when you transition out of the Marine Corps like whether it be four or 25 years and reflected on that and ended up changing at the last minute to communications and it set in motion the entire career path we're going to talk about today. And so when I say stepping stones of luck and opportunity, like that's what it means is that people have whispered things to me and I've really processed them hard and like did a little analysis and triangulated, talked to people and so, really played well. So if I
0: understand that your recruiter, the person that helped you enlist in the Navy is the one that pushed you to apply for an RTC scholarship
1: sure did and that's kind of unheard of like you know they got recruiting goals and things like that to that's achieve right. and so really great fella to do that for me otherwise i may still be in the bowels of a submarine right now turning <laughs> yeah not that that's bad that can be no just like what i'm doing now versus what i could be all right doing. so you wind up
0: going to an rtc scholarship you take a marine option you graduate you go to bulldog all that kind of ocs stuff you're commissioned yep. you're through the basis school and you're you're about to choose your job you were looking at the King of Battle artillery and someone talked you out right. of it. What came next?
1: Yeah. So whenever I chose communications, I actually got it. I was the way the basic school works is they divide the classes into thirds. And depending on where you fall, all the infantry and the Gunji slots get chewed up. I think I was somewhere in the middle of the top third or whatever. And like, I don't know how great I was, but it comm was open. I got it. So great. They're saying, congratulations. Good fit for you. Awesome. I'm like, okay, cool. First duty station. I get assigned. I am um, show up at Camp Lejeune and I am the first information system security officer they've ever had. There's no playbook. We don't know what to do with you. So part of me is like, well, man, I thought I was going to do some cool Marine Corps stuff and go deploy. And here I am at the base. It turned out to be the best entry job you could ever can you, have. Can you give us a time frame, Chris, so people know? Where we're oh, going. yeah. Sorry. That was like 1997, 98, kind of an old salt. Yeah, it went through comm school. Very early and, cyber and, days. Yeah, exactly. Like cybersecurity was still like passwords and viruses. There wasn't an established industry yet. There was like products that were kind of banging around about how to do security better. But the knowledge of state-sponsored, formalized attack, you know, red on blue kinds of activities just emerging. So you're on this
0: base, you're assigned to this base, you're doing, I guess, comms for them, or you're not terribly excited yeah. about it, but it turned out to be an opportunity.
1: Yeah, And then within two months of being there, two major things happened. First one, you can do some history on some of these code names now, because I think they're declassified, at least they're on Wikipedia. Things like Byzantine Hades was classification name for the U.S. government's recognition of a set of specific Chinese state-sponsored actors and the way that they were attacking U.S. government networks. So back then, this was classified. And we basically realized that Everything that we do that supports command and control is technology derived. It's connected to the Internet. And oh, by the way, because it's connected to the Internet, bad people can try to access that stuff and break into it. And so my first order as a second lieutenant, three months on the ground, was go find every piece of technology in Camp Lejeune, coordinate all the people that own all that and make them change the passwords and put real passwords in place. It's crazy. And that was like, I ah, just change the passwords. But no, it was like the reality of the hub of operations that Camp Lejeune provides to the deployed warfighter. And what it meant for backhaul comms and things like that was integral and instrumental to that. And this was back during the Balkan campaigns and things like that were going on. You know, major comm breaks for the systems that were there resulted in those folks being in isolated islands. In wartime operations. Critical to C2, right? You're critical to C2. And it, like holy cow, this is global and real. Not my what I expected, my platoon of Marines, I was gonna have to run. Like I've all of a sudden got a branch of Marines that are responsible for coordinating the safety of and the entire Eastern Seaboard's deployed operations. So holy cow, this is a real job. So now I'm excited yeah. about it. And then right behind that happens this thing called the Melissa and Love Letter viruses. So, I don't know if your listeners remember that. Again, I'm dating myself, but these were largely mistakes for software researchers. Melissa was named after a stripper. The guy was a coder and he created this worm virus that broke out onto the internet and it crippled lots of institutions for upwards of a week. Now, remember, we still all use Outlook email and things like that in our corporate environments today. Well, Outlook email was kind of new to the Marine Corps in 1998, 1999. And because of Melissa and Love Letter, again, now here we are with a command and control system, our email plant, in the entire enterprise of the Marine Corps is all screwed up for almost a week. So imagine what that means for deployed operations. You can't send emails and whatnot. You got to fall back to other C2 command and control systems. So I spent six days with a can of Kodiak and a six-pack of Mountain Dew in my PT gear, rebooting servers with the team and cleaning up the Melissa and Love Letter buyers. I got to cut my teeth. And what it meant to be an incident responder in like the first year of my job and like a major enterprise outage. And it was very eyebrow raising how one important these systems are to Marine Corps operations, global operations, but also like this is gonna be a real industry. This is gonna be a real problem yeah. for the future. And so it it cemented for me, like, all right, this is gonna be a cool run. Whatever did it is. Do we have a high side? Did we have a supernet back then? We did. The cost of managing that was expensive. It was largely air gapped between, you know, that it rode a lot of the same what we call pipes or technology infrastructure, but it was separated. And it was also very limited. Like you had to be, you know, I was have clearance to get to right. it. So that maintained, you know, uptime. It didn't actually jump, I don't recall from the time love letter viruses and things like that. But because of how technology works, those two things kind of share infrastructure and you always have problems with air gap jumps. Like, a laptop that was unclassified today becomes classified tomorrow when knucklehead Lance Corporal plugs it into the center. Right. And, and so that's how those kinds of risks would take place. And we've seen those kinds of incidents too, but we had not seen it such broad scale.
0: I guess one of the things I'm after in asking that question is that it sounds like even though Outlook may have been new at that time, it's amazing how dependent we became on it so quickly for communication. And
1: Yeah. But just think, Frank, I mean, like how dependent are you on email and have you been for the last 20 years? Yeah, sure. Right. I mean, like, sure, we have CIPRNet and that has, you know, classified email over there and you got to go to a special place to use it and all that kind of stuff. But like every day, every Marine, even at that time, used email to do their job. And all of a sudden you took that away just like that overnight. And that's what was so disruptive. It wasn't that like operations were severely disrupted. It was more the realization of Like, how do we get our job done now? And have we contingency planned, you know, something that's so expected from how we operate is now gone. And then the risks of the jumps and things like that and what it would mean if that was to also be taken away. That's what we started thinking about.
0: So at some point, we want to transition to the business world, but you had one other story that you shared. Oh, yeah. Well, I've got a couple and then we'll transition
1: out. But before I left Lejeune, another really interesting, crazy thing happened. So remember Y2K. And the COBOL cowboy problem, like all these old legacy mainframe systems that had been coded without date fields to embrace the rollover of the new year. So back then in Camp Lejeune, the information systems management office, the data center where all the servers and stuff were on a patch of land that apparently had a gas station across the street from it. And back in the 70s, the lore from an old retired colonel friend of mine was that that gas station leaked so much gas, they thought Marines were stealing it and they were putting UV dye in it and checking people coming in and out of the gate. Well, all that gas had seeped into the ground and they knew about that and that was there. 1999, Hurricane Floyd, and you can read the history on this hurricane, it actually hit Camp Lejeune two times in a row. It hit it, mashed it up, caused a flood, went out to sea, turned around and came back and hit it again because it hated Camp Lejeune so much. <laughs> and that flood was so bad, that it forced all that gasoline up out of the ground because it changed the water table. So I'm not kidding. December 28th, 1999, two days before Y2K, I walk into the data center and almost pass out from the smell of gasoline. Like, What is going on in here? Who knocked over the lawnmower? And we call the fire department. They come in with this thing called a benzene meter. It goes and maxes out and says, get everybody out of the building. So I'm not kidding. In order for us to maintain, base operations, much like we experienced with the loss of the Melissa and Love Letter, in 48 hours before Y2K, a platoon of Marines put on basically Don mop gear, uh, or at least gas masks, and turned off everything and said, over the weekend, we're going to drag everything out of this data center and go put it in the library. And we restored service December 31st in the library so we could maintain operational readiness to watch to see what was going to happen for Y2K. It was an unbelievable experience and what it meant to like deal with crisis management and technology resiliency and cybersecurity all bundled together. And like, here I am, like a 24-year-old beer-drinking college kid with my first job. Yeah. So I got promoted out of there. I came up and helped build the Security Operations Center for the Marine Corps, which that was also kind of a new discipline. These concepts, if anyone's in cybersecurity knows about, you've probably heard of managed security operations. You've heard of SIM, security and management and correlation and logging. And these are all intrusion detection systems. These were new technologies and new concepts. And I got to be an active leader in helping both select those technologies, get those deployed across the Marine Corps enterprise and did that for two or three years. And then the Marine Corps Transition to an outsourced contract called NMCI. I think a lot of folks still shake fist and anger at that decision some 15 years ago, because especially as the Marines, the Marine Corps was pretty organized and industry leading in how it was managing technology back then. And that outsourcing kind of stifled that in many ways. I know folks that are still active leaders in the, in the Marine Corps technology space, and they're trying to figure out how to get back out of NMCI after they got into it some 15, 20 years yeah. ago. And that's part of the MCI company. So that was a big telco. Yes. Originally was the awardee. And it like, I think it almost bled them dry. I mean, there's a whole sordid tale of how all that went and what it meant for the, the warfighter. And I had a nice, I had a nice computer and then they show up with this cobbled together of parts, like here's your outsourced computer and what it meant for security, like the bar changed and we had to create this oversight committee and this separate organization to make sure they were doing a good job. And Like a lot of complexity outsourcing and I'm not critical of the decision. I transitioned out, but it changed. Yeah.
0: Well, I was going to ask you that question too,
1: as you were describing what
0: happened now, all these years later, with all the experience that you have, what is your perspective on that decision? Because you you helped lay the foundation for cybersecurity in the very early days, and then they kind of outsourced it to someone else. So you weren't necessarily fostering those skills internally in the Marines.
1: Yeah, well, I put in place. I and others, I can't take credit for all the things I'm talking about. A lot of great Marines did a lot sure. of great work above, with, and below me. But because the Marine Corps is part of the Navy, I think it there was largely a political decision. And being part of the NMC, you know, the Navy Marine Corps Internet, the Marine Corps was pretty well established. And I remember some pseudo conversations that took place. It was basically went something like the commandant of the Marine Corps was told, "You're not getting the Osprey program from SecNav." If you don't cooperate on NMCI, we recognize that you guys are leaders, but we've got the Navy has to get a broader handle on its technology and you're along for the ride. So suck it up, buttercup. And that's kind of how it went. So I don't think it was great. I helped put in place that oversight organization. We basically peeled off a technology component that would collect a lot of data and information from the network that NMCI would provide. And then they would provide what we would call tier three oversight or Tier three analysis, a bunch of smart people under a separate contract to really monitor the network, like we were providing, like the organization I had built and had provided under the Security Operations Center. And that said, I think the Marine Corps has always been pretty cut. It's the most small and nimble service, I think. And so, uh, because of that, and the the DNA of a Marines, you know, very scrappy, you know, like we'll make do, we'll adapt and overcome. And so, I think the Marine Corps continued to drive forward even through the outsourcing decisions and do good security things. They've got a great red team. They've got a great monitoring organization in place from the framework we put in place at Transition. And so I'm proud of that. That said, outsourcing comes with trade-offs. I'll live through it later in my career. We'll talk about it in a few yeah. minutes. So, I mean, to that end, you didn't stay in the service. You did leave. How and why did you leave? Yeah, so I was in for, um, like, I was five years, a little over five years. And then at that point in my career, like, cybersecurity is being born as an industry, I've had this really cool cutting edge job that I kind of tripped into, did a good job with it, took advantage of the opportunity. And so I had to transition out. Otherwise, I was going to go back and play with TAC radio. And like, I kind of missed that because that's kind of the fun part of com. But I knew it was best for my career, just like when that captain whispered in my ear, you should think about artillery. So here's the second time that's happened to me. And so I transitioned out and I went to Northrop Grumman. To be a defense contractor and basically run the playbook that I had run in the Marine Corps for the US Department of Treasury. And Treasury was doing the same thing. They were about to outsource. They had a, a bunch of cybersecurity problems. They were in this transition period. And I was able to, over the course of many years, build a program to help protect that organization. Now, one interrupt to that, Frank, that's particularly interesting, is that I had transitioned out and the Gulf War started. And this was like 2003, 2004. So oh my I'm like, holy crap, man. I just spent five years in the Corps, didn't get to do any forward-deployed activity. Now we're going to war. I won't back in. So I went and joined 6th Com Battalion. It was going to be the 6th Alpha and was going to deploy, shook hands with everybody at Northrop Grumman, said, thanks for the support. I'm going to go do my Marine Corps mission. And sure enough, was all set to go. Wouldn't you know it? I got involuntary recall orders. So it seems when the Marine Corps goes to war, they stand up a few battalions of Marines and to be what they call combat replacements at the time. Now they're called combat augmentees, political wording. And so I couldn't get those orders to go with six Com Battalion on a real mission because I got presidential involuntary recall orders to go join the combat replacement battalions being forward deployed. And wouldn't you know, two weeks later, I'm in Camp Lejeune getting hypothermia, shooting balloons with a 9 millimeter pistol because that's all we had to get requalified on. And three weeks later, I was on a C-5, face backwards, flying into Doha, preparing to deploy to Basra to go do that thing. And I spent probably three, four, four or five months in country. If you've ever seen that movie Three Kings with Clooney, it was kind of like that. Like we had already taken Baghdad by the time we hit the ground. And then I was a captain. I was empowered to you know find useful work for the Marines to do. And so I went and hooked in with one of the Army humanitarian assistance units out of New York, and we started doing security details out of southern Iraq and stuff like that. And it was a really great experience in that it wasn't combat operations, but it was good, healthy work. Like you got to help the defense contractors and others restore service to Iraq post-war campaigns. So you got to see kind of the good that comes out of the removal of the dictatorship there and cleaning up some of the messes that war creates. And so it was a great experience. I got walking of the battlefield, didn't get shot at too much. Nobody got hurt on my watch. So I was particularly proud of being able to, to help with that. Anyway, so that was kind of a cool set aside. I come back to Camp Lejeune and hang out there for a couple more months. And then I come back and continue my cybersecurity career. department. So what was the
0: break like from the time you left the Marines to North of Grumman to the time you were involuntarily recalled?
1: So it was like nine months. I'd just gotten there and was getting my footing, and it had taken over what the initial security plan was going to be. My boss hired me so he could move on. And so I'd just gotten empowered. And then I'm like, sorry, I got to go. So he had to stick around. And, and total me. time you spent called up? I spent five months in country, almost a year total. It you know, was a couple of months getting in, a couple of months getting out. And you out. go back to North Grumman and they welcome you back with open arms. And So, you know, testament to like veterans transitioning to defense industrial base. They know where their bread is buttered and they really took care of me. It was really great. The program kept my seat warm for me. They checked in on me. The team that was there sent me stuff, took care of us. So that was a real, so I came right back and just, it was like nothing had changed. It was really fantastic.
0: And then you got to do the transition twice. That's right. Yeah,
1: (laughs) that's exactly right.
0: So All right. You've done all kinds of things in cybersecurity sense. How do you think your military experience has helped you in your civilian career?
1: Yeah, well, let me color that in the experience. So first and foremost, you know, when I transitioned out to Northrop Grumman, I fell into a kind of a surprisingly fledgling, immature organization. So I was able to bring kind of the disciplines and the expertise of you know, Marine Corps being kind of cutting edge in that stuff at the time to an organization that really needed it. The, the leadership principles I had learned as a lieutenant up through a captain were exceptionally powerful in how I was able to exercise effectively influence operations. We really need to do this. These are the threats that we're dealing with. This is what it could mean for Treasury operations in the future. And you shouldn't trust me to do that from my background. Like, those are all skills that I acquired from a broader cybersecurity perspective and like what I got to deal with in these roles. Like, in the late 2000, like 2007, eight, I also got to run that playbook again, like the, I talked about with the Melissa Love Letter, where the Department of Treasury recognized that it had a real state sponsored attack problem. This is when things became real with, holy crap, That the Chinese really are trying to breach government networks for broader economic progress of their own state. And so I call it the print day where, you know, we had this problem and we showed all the stuff that we had potentially lost. And we took it down literally to the secretary of treasury's office and showed them like, this is the problem that we've experienced. And this is how much it is at stake. We need to invest here. And it helped. And so like being a part of that and having those experiences from crazy stuff that's happening in Camp Lejeune helped me build a team that could lead and deal with that kind of stuff. And I had to you know really put together a great set of people that I'm still great friends with that were instrumental in both how we responded to that, how we put it together. We invested in such a way that Northrop Grumman was able to take advantage of both those experiences to better build their business. And what transitioned me away from Northrop Grumman was, I was positioned to go expatriate to the UAE when opportunities in cybersecurity were emerging internationally, and I was all set to go. And uh, we were going to build basically the equivalent of the NSA for this allied country, and use our partnership that we had through our support through the NSA and other like div contractors. And it just didn't work out the way that defense contracting works. You know, the the best bid for the lowest price, if you will. And so that didn't happen. And at that time. I got a phone call kind of in a dark place after the energy of almost a year of chasing that opportunity from the largest hedge fund in the world. And they wanted someone to come up and be their IT security and risk management person. And another like opportunity just stumbles across my path and I happened to take the call at the right time. I was getting recruited all the time, but this one just had the right vibe to it. And sure enough, almost six months of interview and pursuit, a very interesting institution, Bridgewater Associates was. I took that job, displaced to Connecticut. And spent six years there kind of starting this playbook yet again, all over again. I moved into yet another, what I thought would have been more mature, but relatively immature security organization was help be part of the cogs in the machine to help develop that. And it was all those Marine Corps lessons that I had carried with me that I'm literally, you know, just running that play over and over again.
0: Maybe it's me, but just in listening to you describe all of this, I have this sense that the, just the U.S. as a whole, from business and government, we never really took this cyber stuff seriously, or I guess maybe, man, it's not the right word, but we just weren't cognizant of the level of threat. I feel like we're always being attacked, right? And kind of like surprised yeah. by it. Instead of seeing, hey, there's this new channel, it could be an attack vector. Oh, by the way, it could be a channel for us to do the same thing. Is that perception yeah. right? Or, I mean,
1: uh, kind of. I think so. I think there's a couple of major, major things going on that are important from my perspective for your listeners to hear. First and foremost, Technology is the lifeblood of the United States right now. I mean, like, think about how important Silicon Valley is and the innovation that comes out of that, and how important the systems that we use every day that drive it. So, you know, we talked a little bit earlier. The economics of America were driven off farming and manufacturing 50, 60 years ago. That's now technology and services and things like that. So, that's really important. And cybersecurity is always a cost center, right? Like, I don't want to do it if I don't have to. And now the realization is, holy cow, I have to. So, that's Part one. The other part that I think is you know, driving this is I think we kept these concepts of state-sponsored attacks overshrouded in secrecy. Like I've sat in rooms with like the FBI and other senior folks from the National Security Agency or Homeland Security, and you know, they're like, you know, saying crazy things. Like this was 15 years ago. The keys of the castles are lost. Now we're trying to put it back together and crazy stuff like that. And I don't believe that, but I mean, that's one person's perspective. But it's because people aren't aware. You know, the person, the CEO and the board don't know. And as a CISO now, as a security executive, you know, it's incumbent to like teach people that the threat is real, this is not fake. The industry may be weird and kind of bloated. There may be too much cybersecurity spin because we don't do a good job with it. But the threat is absolutely real. Let me color that a little bit. You know, I, I was writing a paper just recently about this for a partner of mine. When I entered the industry as it was emerging, think of it as like the Revolutionary War. It was line abreast tactics, state-sponsored attackers against the front door of the Marine Corps network, and viruses like Nimda and Code Red. And I got to like there were hacktivists that would try to breach your web, your public-facing website, and deface it to embarrass you and like silly stuff like that. And those tactics have now evolved to much broader campaigns around persistence, surveillance, stealing information, understanding where, for example, at Treasury, where the United States is going to enter G20 negotiations economically, globally, so they can then be prepared to argue in defense against that. That would be their motivation. So that's an example of why. Now, that's changed even in the last couple of years. We had this recent realization over Christmas, if your listeners have been paying attention to the hacks against SolarWinds and how that spiraled out, I consider that kind of the articulation of the transition from line of rest tactics to asymmetric tactics, where why go against the hardened front door of the well-defended institution when that institution is basically built on outsourced technology and technology providers like SolarWinds. SolarWinds is a remote access technology to allow people to fix network stuff from their homes. you know, It's a very simple, colorful way to explain it. Just imagine if I put a backdoor channel as an attacker into that. So I've got a backdoor remote access channel into your remote access channel. Well, that's what's happening. Well, I don't have to go after your network anymore. I'll go after the soft underbelly that is your technology provider plant, who, by the way, don't have nearly the expensive security program that the buying organization does. And so... Now we live in this even crazier time where we have outsourced a lot of our technology providers to these other global providers that do things for us, and they outsource part of how they do business to other providers, and that's who the attackers are going after. Yeah,
0: that's so interesting to hear you say that asymmetric pitch, because I think anyone that is in the military for any length of time knows that during the Iraq and Afghanistan war, we made probably the largest change management experience that's been pulled off ever from what I mean is moving from a conventional integrated air land combat environment to this coin counterinsurgency because the enemies that we faced in those parts of the world didn't want to take the U S military head on. You can't You're going to. Right. Yep. And so the only thing you could do is trade space for time, blend in with the population and, you know, plot these attacks, uh, complex IEDs, all that sort of thing. And so what you're saying is something very similar has happened in the cybersecurity world.
1: That's exactly right. It's a formal trade space. It's now a military discipline. And there's offensive stuff that the services are doing now as well and getting smart about it. If you think about the election campaigns and how now social media ties into deception operations, and you're seeing the linkage now between kinetic, non-kinetic, and influence operations all coming together under what's known as an information operations remit. It's really interesting to see the evolution of those things. And that's exactly right. You know, the attackers are taking advantage of these and so is the U.S. military. We're you know, thinking about how, to give you a color and example, I've got a good friend that's um, in this space, still in the Marine Corps as a colonel now, and talks about like how deception operations will be very, very influential in pretending that we're landing on a beach when we're actually not to change the risk calculus of decision making of the enemy. So like it's all all that's coming to life now. It's really fascinating.
0: I want to try to bring this to the end by asking some of your advice. Got uh, you know three or four questions kind of help people thinking about cybersecurity, maybe they're in the service or thinking about getting in the service. So Let me throw these at you. The first one is is cybersecurity. Do you think cybersecurity is a good field for veterans?
1: Oh my gosh, totally. Especially if you actually have an opportunity to get into it in the service because the services themselves have such a wonderful amount of resourcing behind it because it's an offensive and defensive component. There is no offensive component. Well, there's a very limited offensive component that largely sells to the services in business. So if you can do that, Absolutely. There's a long runway for cybersecurity, I think, in the future. And cybersecurity and environmental stuff are like the two big areas that I see for the next 20 years.
0: What about, you know, I asked this question to some of the other cybersecurity folks. I have some nephews, they're in their 20s, they're thinking about their careers and they're thinking about joining the service. And, you know, they all want to be, you know, Navy SEALs and Army Rangers and that sort of thing. And I'm like, dude, go into cybersecurity. What do you you think about that? Do you think that's a a good field for someone joining the service?
1: Well, first I would say, follow your heart. Like when you're doing what you wanna do, you know, it's not work and that's really important. So don't jam yourself into cybersecurity if you're not, you know, enamored with it. You can get into it. So go be a SEAL, get those leadership skills, get that hardened skin that you come away with it. Because, you know, when you come away with that, the confidence you'll have and then go teach yourself, go to school if cybersecurity is what you wanna do but I would say you you gotta be fearless about it. Much like the SEALs, you can't be afraid to get wet and run and cybersecurity can't be afraid of technology, can't be afraid of change. You gotta be a self-starter. You gotta go get it. Nobody spoon feeds it to you. You gotta be hungry. Yep, makes
0: a lot of sense. What advice would you have for veterans? You know, and I'm thinking the person that isn't in the comms field or isn't in the cybersecurity field. There are an infantry person or an MP or whatever other job they may have and they're thinking about getting out and they're thinking about a career in cybersecurity. What advice would you have
1: for them? Yeah, I would say, first and foremost, it's really hard to jump into cybersecurity without a tech background. So start there. Start in technology. Like, get the basics of technology understood. Pick an avenue, whether it be networking, whether it be endpoint, whether it be software development. If cybersecurity is banged around as like an industry profession, there's actually like 25 disciplines within cybersecurity. So I would say talk to someone in depth that's in the field. I'd be happy to talk to one of your listeners if someone's interested and start with a basis of underpinning technology. If it means like going to a service desk job or something like that, like within technology, like don't be afraid to do that if you really want it and build yourself into that. And then once you have the underpinnings of how the basics of enterprise networking work or enterprise, you can start then peeling off where you would want to go. Like, do I want to be a risk management person? And there are disciplines around how that works and security frameworks and understanding what all that means in the space. And that's what financial institutions operate from around audits and things like that. Do you want to be an operations person and live in a security operations center and go nose to nose with a cyber attacker? That's a technically in-depth one. So you're going to have to get deep in understanding security platforms and how they work and threat behaviors and whatnot. There's security engineering, like who buys, deploys and manages all this technology that protects us. And that's derivative of any other technology. So having that background helps you. And so like these are, and then software secure coding practices, if you're going to be a software developer, like that's in super high demand. And then lastly would be like cloud security and understanding what it means to deploy AWS and take advantage of all their services. And there's so much free material out there. So you know, find someone that can help mentor you, pick a path, and then hold to it. That's how you get there.
0: Do you have a couple of favorite resources? And we'll put a link to the show notes. You say there's so much
1: free material out there. What are some sources of information or education materials that you recommend? Oh, man, there's a lot. So YouTube as a resource is just incredible. But like AWS, if you're like wanting to get into that, that's the really hot one right now. Like There are an enormous amount of information provided by them directly because they want to build a practitioner space. The more practitioners they have, the more they can sell. So you can go direct to them. There's tons of very specific, you can buy training, but I don't think you really need to do that. And then there's a, I think you and I can collaborate. I can send you some blogs and things like that. They're important. the means is, I can't give you like one or two because there's literally hundreds and it depends on the discipline you want to get into. Yeah. Um, so once you pick a discipline, I can offer a little more detail. All right. Sounds good. Hey, Frank, one thing I did want to give props to, and we talked about it. You named it when we pre-gamed. So there's a really great program. I took advantage of it in my last role. I was at a startup. And startup communities are great. It's a radically different way of working because it's so fast paced and you kind of own a little bit of everything. But what was the name of the program as your transition? Skillsoft. Skillsoft. So like for your listeners, like go down to uh, your base resource center and ask about the Skillsoft program. What it basically means is that if it's known from your leadership that you're planning to transition, Skillsoft and your leadership will allow you to take upwards of six months and go work for free as an intern for technology organizations microsoft is a, an enormous proponent i think aws is too i was able to grab a young marine captain that was transitioning out of a tech role from the nsa so he's already kind of pre-gamed into to work with me at attack iq for 6 months maintain his citizenry if you will in the core as a captain but he was basically in training and so it's great on both sides you get to size up a company for is this a place I would really want to work in a field I want to work in? And the company gets to size you up. Is would you be a good fit for their culture? And you don't have to worry about being fired or anything like that. So I wanted to weaponize that. Like I wanted to build a campaign operation to go sort through the bases and start identifying candidates that would work well. And I don't think it's championed well, but at least once I understood it and took advantage, it was really easy. Like a one page statement of work and a check in once every couple of weeks is all it takes. It's not hard to do. So That's a really, really cool and interesting way to get into technology and cybersecurity if you're transitioning out. Go figure it out. Hey, listeners, a quick break to tell you the program is called SkillBridge, not
0: SkillSoft. The military does use SkillSoft, or at least it has in the past, for some online training. This is something completely different. The program is called SkillBridge. If you Google SkillBridge and DoD, you will find a link to the program and we will update the shows website with the proper link okay back to the program yeah we'll put a link to that in the show notes i think i have one already up on the resource page but we'll go dig it up and add it again basically your your last six months in service you can go be an intern and gain some experience
1: right and it's not hard it, i mean like it, there's not a big bureaucracy behind it. it's not like filing your taxes or anything it's <laughs> yeah. talk to your boss and boss says cool and you can get away from your job then it's uh do a good job of transitioning then you're ready to go
0: So Chris, you're a crazy busy guy. You've got a really high profile job, but if someone listening to the show, you know, wanted to connect with you or had a question, is there a place they can find you online?
1: Yeah, well, first off, I'm Christopher Kennedy, probably Christopher Kennedy, Northrop Grumman or Treasury. There's a bunch of us out there. You can grab me on LinkedIn and don't hesitate to reach out that way. And then when I can work time in or commit to work with you, I'd be happy to do what I can for you. Yeah, that sounds good.
0: Hey, thank you for your service. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing your
1: experience. Great. Thanks, Frank. It's really great to be here. Look forward to uh, working with you again.
0: Thank you for listening to the Boots About Business podcast. Please know you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you catch your podcasts. And while you are there, won't you leave us a nice review? It'll help the show and in turn help other veterans. Finally, if you know someone that's a veteran in business or is an entrepreneur with a story to share, hit us up using the contact form on the show's website. That's BootsAboutBusiness.com. That's all one word, BootsAboutBusiness.com. Until next time, I am your host, Frank Strong, out here.